Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. Daratumumab, ortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone for multiple myeloma. Background. Daratumumab, a monoclonal antibody targeting CD38, has been approved for use with standard myeloma regimens. An evaluation of subcutaneous daratumumab combined with bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, BRD, for the treatment of transplantation-eligible patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma is needed. Methods In this Phase 3 trial, we randomly assigned 709 transplantation-eligible patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma to receive either subcutaneous daratumumab combined with VRD induction and consolidation therapy and with lenalidomide maintenance therapy, DVRD group, or VRD induction and consolidation therapy and lenalidomide maintenance therapy alone, VRD group. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Key secondary endpoints were a complete response or better and minimal residual disease, MRD negative status. Results At a median follow-up of 47.5 months, the risk of disease progression or death in the DVRD group was lower than the risk in the VRD group. The estimated percentage of patients with progression-free survival at 48 months was 84.3% in the DVRD group and 67.7% in the VRD group. Hazard ratio for disease progression or death, 0.42, 95% confidence interval, 0.30 to 0.59, p less than 0.001, the p-value crossed the pre-specified stopping boundary, p equals 0.0126. The percentage of patients with a complete response or better was higher in the DVRD group than in the VRD group, 87.9% versus 70.1%, P less than 0.001, as was the percentage of patients with MRD negative status, 75.2% versus 47.5%, P less than 0.001. Death occurred in 34 patients in the DVRD group and 44 patients in the VRD group. Grade 3 or 4 adverse events occurred in most patients in both groups, the most common were neutropenia, 62.1% with DVRD and 51.0% with VRD and thrombocytopenia, 29.1% and 17.3%, respectively. Serious adverse events occurred in 57.0% of the patients in the DVRD group and 49.3% of those in the VRD group. Conclusions the addition of subcutaneous daratumumab to VRD induction and consolidation therapy and to lenalidomide maintenance therapy conferred a significant benefit with respect to progression-free survival among transplantation-eligible patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. Trial of Selective Early Treatment of Patent Ductus Arteriosus with Ibuprofen Background The cyclooxygenase inhibitor ibuprofen may be used to treat patent ductus arteriosus, PDA, in preterm infants. Whether selective early treatment of large PDAs with ibuprofen would improve short-term outcomes is not known. Methods We conducted a multicenter, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial evaluating early treatment, less than or equal to 72 hours after birth, with ibuprofen for a large PDA, diameter of greater than or equal to 1. 5 mm with pulsatile flow, in extremely preterm infants, born between 23 weeks 0 days and 28 weeks 6 days gestation. 
the primary outcome was a composite of death or moderate or severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia evaluated at 36 weeks of postmenstrual age. Results A total of 326 infants were assigned to receive ibuprofen and 327 to receive placebo, 324 and 322, respectively, had data available for outcome analyses. A primary outcome event occurred in 220 of 318 infants, 69.2%, in the ibuprofen group and 202 of 318 infants, 63.5%, in the placebo group, adjusted risk ratio, 1.09, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.98 to 1.20, P equals 0.10. A total of 44 of 323 infants, 13.6%, in the ibuprofen group and 33 of 321 infants, 10.3%, in the placebo group died, adjusted risk ratio, 1.32, 95% C, 0.92 to 1.90. Among the infants who survived to 36 weeks of postmenstrual age, moderate or severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia occurred in 176 of 274, 64.2%, in the ibuprofen group and 169 of 285, 59.3%, in the placebo group, adjusted risk ratio, 1.09, 95% C, 0.96 to 1.23. Two unforeseeable serious adverse events occurred that were possibly related to ibuprofen. Conclusions The risk of death or moderate or severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia at 36 weeks of postmenstrual age was not significantly lower among infants who received early treatment with ibuprofen than among those who received placebo. Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Therapy Guided by Measurable Residual Disease Background the combination of ibrutinib and venetoclax has been shown to improve outcomes in patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, as compared with chemoimmunotherapy. Whether ibrutinib venetoclax and personalization of treatment duration according to measurable residual disease, MRD, is more effective than fludarabine cyclophosphamide rituximab, FCR, is unclear. Methods In this phase 3, multicenter, randomized, controlled, open-label platform trial involving patients with untreated CLL, we compared ibrutinib venetoclax and ibrutinib monotherapy with FCR. In the ibrutinib venetoclax group, after two months of ibrutinib, venetoclax was added for up to six years of therapy. The duration of ibrutinib venetoclax therapy was defined by MRD assessed in peripheral blood and bone marrow, and was double the time taken to achieve undetectable MRD. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival in the ibrutinib venetoclax group as compared with the FCR group, results that are reported here. Key secondary endpoints were overall survival, response, MRD, and safety. Results A total of 523 patients were randomly assigned to the ibrutinib venetoclax group or the FCR group. At a median of 43.7 months, Disease progression or death had occurred in 12 patients in the ibrutinib venetoclax group and 75 patients in the FCR group, hazard ratio, 0.13, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.07 to 0.24, P less than 0.001. Death occurred in 9 patients in the ibrutinib venetoclax group and 25 patients in the FCR group, hazard ratio, 0.31, 95% C, 0.15 to 0.67. At three years, 58.0% of the patients in the ibrutinib venetoclax group had stopped therapy owing to undetectable MRD. After five years of ibrutinib venetoclax therapy, 65.9% of the patients had undetectable MRD in the bone marrow and 92.7% had undetectable MRD in the peripheral blood. The risk of infection was similar in the ibrutinib venetoclax group and the FCR group. The percentage of patients with cardiac serious adverse events was higher in the ibrutinib venetoclax group than in the FCR group, 10.7% versus 0.4%. Conclusions MRD-directed ibrutinib venetoclax improved progression-free survival as compared with FCR, and results for overall survival also favored ibrutinib venetoclax.
Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Rape-related pregnancies in the 14 U.S. states with total abortion bans. Many U.S. women report experiencing sexual violence, and many seek abortion for rape-related pregnancies. One following the U.S. Supreme Court's 2022 Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, Dobbs, decision overturning Roe v. Wade, 14 states have outlawed abortion any gestational duration. Two, although five of these states allow exceptions for rape-related pregnancies, stringent gestational duration limits apply, and survivors must report the rape to law enforcement, a requirement likely to disqualify most survivors of rape, of whom only 21% report their rape to police. Three. Post Dobbs, 10 or fewer legal abortions occurred monthly in each of the total abortion ban states. Four, we estimated rape-related pregnancies by state to assess how abortion bans affected survivors of rape. Results. In the 14 states that implemented total abortion bans following the Dobbs decision, we estimated that 519,981 completed rapes were associated with 64,565 pregnancies during the 4 to 18 months that bans were in effect. Table 2. Of these, an estimated 5,586 rape-related pregnancies, 9%, occurred in states with rape exceptions, and 58,979, 91%, in states with no exception, with 26,313, 45%, in Texas. Discussion In this cross-sectional study, thousands of girls and women in states that banned abortion experienced rape-related pregnancy, but few, if any, obtained in-state abortions legally. Four suggesting that rape exceptions fail to provide reasonable access to abortion for survivors. Survivors of rape who become pregnant in states with abortion bans may seek a self-managed abortion or try to travel, often hundreds of miles, to a state where abortion is legal, leaving many without a practical alternative to carrying the pregnancy to term. Our estimates have limitations. We use CDC data, the most accurate available national data on rapes, but such highly stigmatized experiences are difficult to measure accurately in surveys. Our adjustment for secular change since the 2016-2017 CDC survey assumes that the BJ's undercount was proportionally similar in 2016 and 2017 and 2022. The 95% C should be interpreted cautiously because we used multiple data sources to obtain our estimates. Nonetheless, the large number of estimated rape-related pregnancies in abortion ban states compared with the 10 or fewer legal abortions per month occurring in each of those states indicates that persons who have been raped and become pregnant cannot access legal abortions in their home state, even in states with rape exceptions. International Consensus Criteria for Pediatric Sepsis and Septic Shock Objective to Update and Evaluate Criteria for Sepsis and Septic Shock in Children Evidence Review The Society of Critical Care Medicine, SCCM, convened a task force of 35 pediatric experts in critical care, emergency medicine, infectious diseases, general pediatrics, nursing, public health, and neonatology from six continents. Using evidence from an international survey, systematic review and meta-analysis, and a new organ dysfunction score developed based on more than 3 million electronic health record encounters from 10 sites on four continents, a modified Delphi consensus process was employed to develop criteria. Findings based on survey data, most pediatric clinicians used sepsis to refer to infection with life-threatening organ dysfunction, which differed from prior pediatric sepsis criteria that use systemic inflammatory response syndrome, SIRS, criteria, which have poor predictive properties, and included the redundant term, severe sepsis. The SCCM task force recommends that sepsis in children be identified by a Phoenix sepsis score of at least two points in children with suspected infection, which indicates potentially life-threatening dysfunction of the respiratory, cardiovascular, coagulation, and or neurological systems. Children with a Phoenix sepsis score of at least 2 points had in-hospital mortality of 7.1% in higher resource settings and 28.5% in lower resource settings, more than 8 times that of children with suspected infection not meeting these criteria. Mortality was higher in children who had organ dysfunction in at least one of four, respiratory, cardiovascular, coagulation, and or neurological, organ systems that was not the primary site of infection. Septic shock was defined as children with sepsis who had cardiovascular dysfunction, 
indicated by at least one cardiovascular point in the Phoenix sepsis score, which included severe hypotension for age, blood lactate exceeding 5 millimoles/l, or need for vasoactive medication. Children with septic shock had an in-hospital mortality rate of 10.8% and 33.5% in higher and lower resource settings, respectively. Conclusions and relevance The Phoenix sepsis criteria for sepsis and septic shock in children were derived and validated by the International SCCM Pediatric Sepsis Definition Task Force using a large international database and survey, systematic review and meta-analysis, and modified Delphi consensus approach. A Phoenix sepsis score of at least two identified potentially life-threatening organ dysfunction in children younger than 18 years with infection, and its use has the potential to improve clinical care, epidemiological assessment, and research in pediatric sepsis and septic shock around the world. Functional Outcomes After Localized Prostate Cancer Treatment Importance Adverse Outcomes Associated with Treatments for Localized Prostate Cancer Remain Unclear Objective to Compare Rates of Adverse Functional Outcomes Between Specific Treatments for Localized Prostate Cancer Design, Setting, and Participants An Observational Cohort Study Using Data from Five U.S. Surveillance, Epidemiology, and End Results Program Registries Participants were treated for localized prostate cancer between 2011 and 2012. At baseline, 1877 had favorable prognosis prostate cancer, defined as CT1-CT2-BN0-M0, prostate-specific antigen level less than 20 nanograms per milliliter, and grade group 1 to 2, and 568 had unfavorable prognosis prostate cancer, defined as CT2-CN0-M0, prostate-specific antigen level of 20 to 50 nanograms per milliliter or grade group 3 to 5. Follow-up data were collected by questionnaire through February 1, 2022. Main outcomes and measures outcomes were patient-reported sexual, urinary, bowel, and hormone function measured using the 26-item expanded prostate cancer index composite, range, 0 to 100, 100 equals best. Associations of specific therapies with each outcome were estimated and compared at 10 years after treatment, adjusting for corresponding baseline scores, and patient and tumor characteristics. M. Results A total of 2,445 patients with localized prostate cancer, median age, 64 years, 14% black, 8% Hispanic, were included and followed up for a median of 9.5 years. Among 1877 patients with favorable prognosis, radical prostatectomy was associated with worse urinary incontinence, adjusted mean difference, minus 12.1, 95% C, minus 16.2 to minus 8.0, but not worse sexual function, adjusted mean difference, minus 7.2, 95% C, minus 12.3 to minus 2.0, compared with active surveillance. Among 568 patients with unfavorable prognosis, radical prostatectomy was associated with worse urinary incontinence, adjusted mean difference, minus 26.6, 95% C, minus 35.0 to minus 18.2, but not worse sexual function, adjusted mean difference, minus 1.4, 95% C, minus 11.1 to 8.3, compared with external beam radiotherapy with androgen deprivation therapy. Among patients with unfavorable prognosis, external beam radiotherapy with androgen deprivation therapy was associated with worse bowel, adjusted mean difference, minus 4.9, 95% C, minus 9.2 to minus 0.7, and hormone, adjusted mean difference, minus 4.9, 95% C, minus 9.5 to minus 0.3, function compared with radical prostatectomy. Conclusions and relevance among patients treated for localized prostate cancer, radical prostatectomy was associated with worse urinary incontinence but not worse sexual function at 10-year follow-up compared with radiotherapy or surveillance among people with more favorable prognosis and compared with radiotherapy for those with unfavorable prognosis. Among men with unfavorable prognosis disease, external beam radiotherapy with androgen deprivation therapy was associated with worse bowel and hormone function at 10-year follow-up compared with radical prostatectomy.
Cancer Diagnoses After Recent Weight Loss Objective to determine the rates of subsequent cancer diagnoses over 12 months among health professionals with weight loss during the prior two years compared with those without recent weight loss. Exposure recent weight change was calculated from the participant weights that were reported biennially. The intentionally of weight loss was categorized as high if both physical activity and diet quality increased, medium if only one increased, and low if neither increased. Main Outcome and Measures Rates of Cancer Diagnosis During the 12 Months After Weight Loss Results Among 157,474 Participants, Median Age, 62 Years, IQR, 54-70 to 70 Years, 111,912 for Female, 71.1%, There were 2,631 Participants, 1.7%, who self-identified as Asian, Native American, or Native Hawaiian. 2,678 black participants, 1.7%, and 149,903 white participants, 95.2%, and during 1.64 million person years of follow-up, 15,809 incident cancer cases were identified, incident rate, 964 cases slash 100,000 person years. During the 12 months after reported weight change, there were 1,362 cancer cases slash 100,000 person years among all participants with recent weight loss of greater than 10.0% of body weight compared with 869 cancer cases slash 100,000 person years among those without recent weight loss, between group difference, 493 cases slash 100,000 person years, 95% C, 391 to 594 cases slash 100,000 person years p less than 0.001. Among participants categorized with low intentionally for weight loss, there were 2,687 cancer cases slash 100,000 person years for those with weight loss of greater than 10.0% of body weight compared with 1,220 cancer cases slash 100,000 person years for those without recent weight loss, between group difference, 1,467 cases slash 100,000 person years, 95% C. 799-2135 cases slash 100,000 person years, p less than 0.001. Cancer of the upper gastrointestinal tract, cancer of the esophagus, stomach, liver, biliary tract, or pancreas, was particularly common among participants with recent weight loss. There were 173 cancer cases slash 100,000 person years for those with weight loss of greater than 10.0% of body weight compared with 36 cancer cases slash 100,000 person years for those without recent weight loss, between group difference, 137 cases slash 100,000 person years, 95% C, 101 to 172 cases slash 100,000 person years, P less than 0.001. Conclusions and relevance health professionals with weight loss within the prior two years had a significantly higher risk of cancer during the subsequent 12 months compared with those without recent weight loss. Cancer of the upper gastrointestinal tract was particularly common among participants with recent weight loss compared with those without recent weight loss. Recreational and Medical Cannabis Legalization and Opioid Prescriptions and Mortality Importance While some have argued that cannabis legalization has helped to reduce opioid-related morbidity and mortality in the U.S., evidence has been mixed. Moreover, existing studies did not account for biases that could arise when policy effects vary over time or across states or when multiple policies are assessed at the same time, as in the case of recreational and medical cannabis legalization. Objective to quantify changes in opioid prescriptions and opioid overdose deaths associated with recreational and medical cannabis legalization in the U.S. Design, setting, and participants This quasi-experimental, generalized difference in differences analysis used annual state-level data between January 2006 and December 2020 to compare states that legalized recreational or medical cannabis versus those that did not. Intervention Recreational and Medical Cannabis Law Implementation Proxy by recreational and medical cannabis dispensary openings between 2006 and 2020 across U.S. states. Main outcomes and measures opioid prescription rates per 100 persons and opioid overdose deaths per 100,000 population based on data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
Results between 2006 and 2020, 13 states legalized recreational cannabis and 23 states legalized medical cannabis. There was no statistically significant association of recreational or medical cannabis laws with opioid prescriptions or overall opioid overdose mortality across the 15-year study period, although the results also suggested a potential reduction in synthetic opioid deaths associated with recreational cannabis laws, 4.9 fewer deaths per 100 000 population, 95% C, minus 9.49 to minus 0.30, P equals 0.04. Sensitivity analyzes excluding state economic indicators, accounting for additional opioid laws and using alternative ways to code treatment dates yielded substantively similar results, suggesting the absence of statistically significant associations between cannabis laws and the outcomes of interest during the full study period. Conclusions and relevance The results of this study suggest that, after accounting for biases due to possible heterogeneous effects and simultaneous assessment of recreational and medical cannabis legalization, the implementation of recreational or medical cannabis laws was not associated with opioid prescriptions or opioid mortality, with the exception of a possible reduction in synthetic opioid deaths associated with recreational cannabis law implementation. Opioid prescribing patterns after imposition of setting specific limits on prescription duration. Importance Despite their widespread adoption across the U.S., policies imposing one-size-fits-all limits on the duration of prescriptions for opioids have shown modest and mixed implications for prescribing. Objective to assess whether a prescription duration limit policy tailored to different clinical settings was associated with shorter opioid prescription lengths. Design, setting, and participants This cross-sectional study examined changes in opioid prescribing patterns for opioid-naive Medicaid enrollees aged 12 to 64 years before and after implementation of a statewide prescription duration limit policy in West Virginia in June 2018. Patients with cancer or Medicare coverage were excluded. The policy assigned a seven-day duration limit to opioid prescriptions for adults treated in outpatient hospital or office-based practices, a four-day limit for adults treated in emergency departments, and a three-day limit for pediatric patients younger than 18 years regardless of clinical setting. Data were examined from January 1, 2017, through September 30, 2019, and data were analyzed from June 12 to October 30, 2023. Main outcomes and measures whether a patient's initial opioid prescription was longer in days than the June 2018 policy limit for a given care setting before and after policy implementation. Interrupted time series models were used to calculate the association between the policy's implementation and outcomes. Results The analytic sample included 44,703 Medicaid enrollees, 27,957 patients, 62.5%, before policy implementation and 16,746 patients, 37.5%, after policy implementation, mean SD, age, 33.9, 13.4, years, 27,461 females, 61.4%. Among adults treated in outpatient hospital or office-based settings, the duration limit policy was associated with a decrease of 8.83, 95% C, minus 10.43 to minus 7.23, percentage points, P less than 0.001, or a 56.8% relative reduction, in the proportion of prescriptions exceeding the 7-day limit. In the emergency department setting, the policy was associated with a decrease of 7.03, 95% C, minus 10.38 to minus 3.68, percentage points, P less than 0.001, a 37.5% relative reduction, in the proportion of prescriptions exceeding the 4-day limit. The proportion of pediatric opioid prescriptions longer than the 3-day limit decreased by 12.80, 95% C, minus 17.31 to minus 8.37, percentage points, P less than 0.001, a 26.5% relative reduction, after the policy's implementation. Conclusions and relevance results of this cross-sectional study suggest that opioid prescription duration limits tailored to different clinical settings are associated with reduced length of prescriptions for opioid-naive patients. 
Additional research is needed to evaluate whether these limits are associated with reductions in the incidence of opioid use disorder or with unintended consequences, such as shifts to illicit opioids. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine Cumulative Incidence of Thiazide-Induced Hyponatremia Background According to drug labels, the frequency of thiazide-induced hyponatremia is unknown or uncommon to very rare, that is, less than 1 in 10 000 to less than 1 in 100, but the exact burden remains unclear. Objective To estimate the increase in the cumulative incidence of hyponatremia using thiazide diuretics compared with non-thiazide antihypertensive drugs in routine clinical practice. Design Population and Register-Based Cohort Study Using Target Trial Emulation Setting Denmark, January 1, 2014 to October 31, 2018 Participants Two target trials were emulated among persons aged 40 years or older who had no recent prescription for any antihypertensive drug, had no previous hyponatremia, and were eligible for the studied antihypertensive treatments. The first target trial emulation compared new use of bendroflumathiazide, BFC, versus a calcium channel blocker, CCB. The second target trial emulation compared new use of hydrochlorothiazide plus a renin-angiotensin system inhibitor, HCTZ-ROSI, that is, combination pill, versus a ROSI alone. Measurements Two-year cumulative incidences of sodium levels less than 130 millimoles L using stabilized inverse probability of treatment-weighted survival curves. Results The study compared 37,786 new users of BFC with 44,963 of a CCB and 11,943 new users of HCTZ-ROSI with 85,784 of a ROSI. The two-year cumulative incidences of hyponatremia were 3.83% for BFC and 3.51% for HCTZ-ROSI. The risk differences were 1.35%, 95% C, 1.04% to 1.66%, between BFC and CCB and 1.38%, C, 1.01% to 1.75%, between HCTZ-ROSI and ROSI risk differences were higher with older age and higher comorbidity burden. The respective hazard ratios were 3.56, c, 2.76 to 4.60, and 4.25, c, 3.23 to 5.59, during the first 30 days since treatment initiation and 1.26, c, 1.09 to 1.46, and 1.29, c, 1.05 to 1.58, after one year. Limitation the study assumed that filled prescriptions equal drug use, and residual confounding is likely. Conclusion Treatment initiation with thiazide diuretics suggests a more substantial excess risk for hyponatremia, particularly during the first months of treatment, than indicated by drug labeling. HIV testing and pre-exposure prophylaxis prescriptions among U.S. commercially insured transgender men and women, 2014-2021. Background Transgender persons are disproportionately affected by HIV, but pre-exposure prophylaxis, PREP, use has been low in this population. Clinical encounters for gender-affirming hormone therapy, GAHT, provide opportunities for HIV prevention. Objective to estimate the number of commercially insured transgender women, TGW, and transgender men, TGM, in the United States and their use of HIV prevention services. Design. Retrospective analysis of secondary data. Setting. Marative Market Scan Commercial Databases from 2014 to 2021. Participants. TGW and TGM defined as those with transgender-related diagnoses and prescriptions for feminizing or masculinizing GOT. Measurements HIV testing and PREP use Results A substantially increasing trend was observed in the prevalence of transgender-related diagnosis codes from 2014 to 2021 and in the proportion of persons who use GOT. The increases were driven by persons aged 18 to 34 years. 
In 2021, among 10,613 TGW with a test for or a diagnosis of a sexually transmitted infection, STI, in the previous 12 months, 61.1% had an HIV test, among those, 20.2% were prescribed PREP. Among 4,184 TGM with STI risk, 48.3% had an HIV test, among those, 10.2% were prescribed PREP. The prevalence of TGW and TGM who had a test for or a diagnosis of an STI, had an HIV test, and were prescribed PREP increased substantially from 2014 to 2021. Limitation The findings represent only persons with commercial health insurance who sought health care services for God. Conclusion It is important to identify transgender persons to monitor their receipt of HIV prevention services. Encounters for God provide opportunities to offer HIV prevention and other prevention services. Many HIV prevention opportunities were likely missed at clinical encounters for God. Next article from Nature Medicine. T-cell lymphoma and secondary primary malignancy risk after commercial CAR T-cell therapy. We report a T-cell lymphoma, TCL, occurring three months after anti-CD19 chimeric antigen receptor, CAR, T-cell immunotherapy for non-Hodgkin B-cell lymphoma. The TCL was diagnosed from a thoracic lymph node upon surgery for lung cancer. The TCL exhibited CD8 plus cytotoxic phenotype and a JAK3 variant, while the CAR transgene was very low. The T-cell clone was identified at low levels in the blood before CAR infusion and in the lung cancer. To assess the overall risk of secondary primary malignancy, SPM, after commercial CART, CD19, BCMA, we analyzed 449 patients treated at the University of Pennsylvania. At a median follow-up of 10.3 months, 16 patients, 3.6%, had SPM. Median onset time was 26.4 and 9.7 months for solid and hematological malignancies, respectively. The projected 5-year cumulative incidence is 15.2% for solid and 2.3% for hematological malignancies. Overall, one case of TCL was observed, suggesting a low risk of TCL postcard. Next article from British Medical Journal. Ecological Study Estimating Melanoma Overdiagnosis in the USA Using the Lifetime Risk Method Abstract Objectives to quantify the proportion of melanoma diagnoses, invasive and in situ, in the USA that might be overdiagnosed. Designed in this ecological study, incidents and mortality data were collected from the Surveillance, Epidemiology and End Results 9 Registries Database. DevKin software was used to calculate the cumulative lifetime risk of being diagnosed with melanoma between 1975 and 2018, with adjustments made for changes in longevity and risk factors over the study period. Setting USA. Participants White American Men and Women, 1975-2018. to Main outcome measures the primary outcome was excess lifetime risk of melanoma diagnosis between 1976 and 2018, adjusted for year 2018 competing mortality and changes in risk factors, which was inferred as likely overdiagnosis. The secondary outcome was an excess lifetime risk of melanoma diagnosis in each year between 1976 and 2018, adjusted and unadjusted. Results between 1975 and 2018 The adjusted lifetime risk of being diagnosed with melanoma, invasive and in situ, increased from 3.2%, 1 in 31, to 6.4%, 1 in 16, among white men, and from 1.6%, 1 in 63, to 4.5%, 1 in 22, among white women. Over the same period, the adjusted lifetime risk of being diagnosed with melanoma in situ increased from 0.17%, 1 in 588, to 2.7%, 1 in 37, in white men and 0.08%, 1 in 1250, to 2.0%, 1 in 50, in white women. An estimated 49.7% of melanomas diagnosed in white men and 64.6% in white women were overdiagnosed in 2018. Among people diagnosed with melanomas in situ, 
89.4% of white men and 85.4% of white women were likely overdiagnosed in 2018. Conclusions Melanoma overdiagnosis among white Americans is significant and increasing over time with an estimated 44.000 overdiagnosed in men and 39.000 in women in 2018. A large proportion of overdiagnosed melanomas are in situ cancers, pointing to a potential focus for intervention. The escalation of dual antiplatelet therapy for patients with acute coronary syndrome after percutaneous coronary intervention, a systematic review and network meta-analysis. Objectives to compare dual antiplatelet therapy, DAPT, the escalation with five alternative DAPT strategies in patients with acute coronary syndrome, ACS, undergoing percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI. Design we conducted a systematic review and network meta-analysis, NMA. Parallel arm randomized controlled trials, RCTs, comparing DAPT strategies were included and arms of interest were compared via NMA. Partial ranking of each identified arm and for each investigated endpoint was also performed. Setting in participants adult patients with ACS, greater than or equal to 18 years, undergoing PCI with indications for DAPT. Intervention 6 strategies were assessed, T1 arm, acetyl salicylic acid, ASA and prosegril for 12 months, T2 arm, ASA and low-dose prosegril for 12 months, T3 arm, ASA and ticagrelor for 12 months, T4 arm, DAP to escalation, ASA plus P2Y12 inhibitor for 1 to 3 months, then single antiplatelet therapy with potent P2Y12 inhibitor or DAP with clopidogrel, T5 arm, ASA and clopidogrel for 12 months, T6 arm, ASA and clopidogrel for 3 to 6 months. Main outcome measures primary outcome, cardiovascular mortality. Secondary outcomes, bleeding events, all, major, minor, stent thrombosis, ST, stroke, myocardial infarction, knee, all-cause mortality, major adverse cardiovascular events, MACE. Results 23 RCTs, 75064 patients with ACS were included. No differences in cardiovascular mortality, all-cause death, Recurrent me or MACE were found when the six strategies were compared, although with different levels of certainty of evidence. ASA and clopidogrel for 12 or 3 to 6 months may result in a large increase of ST risk versus ASA plus full dose prosugril or 2.00, 95% C1.14 to 3.12, and or 3.42, 95% C1.33 to 7.26, respectively, low certainty evidence for both comparisons. VAPTA escalation probably results in a reduced risk of all bleedings compared with ASA plus full-dose 12-month prosugril, or 0.49, 95% C0.26 to 0.81, moderate certainty evidence, and ASA plus 12-month ticagrelor, or 0.52, 95% C0.33 to 0.75, while it may not increase the risk of street ASA plus 12-month clopidogrel may reduce all bleedings versus ASA plus full-dose 12-month prosugril, or 0.66, 95% C0.42 to 0.94, low certainty, and ASA plus 12-month ticagrelor, or 0.70, 95% C0.52 to 0.89. Conclusions DAPTA escalation and ASA clopidogrel regimens may reduce bleeding events compared with 12 months ASA and potent P2Y12 inhibitors. 3 to 6 months or 12 month aspirin clopidogrel may increase ST risk compared with 12 month aspirin plus potent P2Y12 inhibitors, while DAPTA escalation probably does not. Next article from Lancet. Imitelstat in patients with lower-risk myelodysplastic syndromes who have relapsed or are refractory to erythropoiesis-stimulating agents, emerge, a multinational, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, phase 3 trial. Background. Unmet medical needs remain in patients with red blood cell transfusion-dependent, RBCTD, lower-risk myelodysplastic syndromes, LRMDS, who are not responding to or are ineligible for erythropoiesis-stimulating agents, ESAs. Imitelstat, 
a competitive telomerase inhibitor, showed promising results in a phase 2 trial. We aim to compare the RBC transfusion independence, RBCT, rate with imetelstat versus placebo in patients with RBCTDLRMDS. Methods In phase 3 of eMERGE, a double-blind, placebo-controlled trial conducted in 118 sites including university hospitals, cancer centers, and outpatient clinics in 17 countries, patients, aged greater than or equal to 18 years, with ESA relapsed, ESA refractory, or ESA ineligible LRMDS, low or intermediate one-risk disease as per International Prognostic Scoring System, IPSS, criteria, were randomly assigned via a computer-generated schedule, 2 to 1, to receive imetelstat 7 middle.5 mg kg or placebo, administered as a 2-hour intravenous infusion, every 4 weeks until disease progression, unacceptable toxic effects, or withdrawal of consent. Findings Between Sept 11, 2019, and October 13, 2021, 178 patients were enrolled and randomly assigned, 118 to imetelstat and 60 to placebo. 111, 62%, were male and 67, 38%, were female. 91, 77%, of 118 patients had discontinued treatment by data cutoff in the imetelstat group versus 45, 75%, in the placebo group. A further one patient in the placebo group did not receive treatment. Median follow-up was 19 middle.5 months, IQR 12 middle.0 to 23 middle.4, in the imetelstat group and 17 middle.5 months, 12 middle.1 to 22 middle.7, in the placebo group. In the imetelstat group, 47, 40%, 95% C30 middle.9 to 49 middle.3, patients had an RBCT of at least 8 weeks versus 9, 15%, 7 middle.1 to 26 middle.6, in the placebo group, rate difference 25%, 9 middle.9 to 36 middle.9. P equals 0 middle.0008. Overall, 107, 91% of 118 patients receiving imetelstat and 28, 47% of 59 patients receiving placebo had grade 3 to 4 treatment emergent adverse events. The most common treatment emergent grade 3 to 4 adverse events in patients taking imetelstat were neutropenia, 80, 68%, patients who received imetelstat versus 2, 3%, who received placebo, and thrombocytopenia, 73, 62%, versus 5, 8%. No treatment-related deaths were reported. Interpretation Imitelstat offers a novel mechanism of action with durable transfusion independence, approximately one year, and disease-modifying activity for heavily transfused patients with LRMDS who are not responding to or are ineligible for... JAMA Cardiology Polygenic Risk in Families with Spontaneous Coronary Artery Dissection Important Spontaneous Coronary Artery Dissection, SCAD, is a poorly understood cause of acute coronary syndrome that predominantly affects women. Evidence to date suggests a complex genetic architecture, while a family history is reported for a minority of cases. Objective to determine the contribution of rare and common genetic variants to SCAD risk in familial cases, the latter via the comparison of a polygenic risk score, PRS, with those with sporadic SCAD and healthy controls. Design, setting, and participants This genetic association study analyzed families with SCAD, individuals with sporadic SCAD, and healthy controls. Genotyping was undertaken for all participants. Participants were recruited between 2017 and 2021. A PRS for SCAD was calculated for all participants. The presence of rare variants in genes associated with connective tissue disorders, CTD, was also assessed. Individuals with SCAD were recruited via social media or from a single medical center. A previously published control database of older healthy individuals was used. Data were analyzed from January 2022 to October 2023. Exposures PRS for SCAD comprised of seven single nucleotide variants. Main outcomes and measures disease status, familial SCAD, sporadic SCAD, or healthy control, associated with PRS. Results a total of 13 families with SCAD, 
27 affected and 12 unaffected individuals, 173 individuals with sporadic SCAD, and 1,127 healthy controls were included. A total of 188 individuals with SCAD, 94.0%, were female, including 25 of 27 with familial SCAD and 163 of 173 with sporadic SCAD, of 12 unaffected individuals from families with SCAD, 6, 50%, were female, and of 1,127 healthy controls, 672, 59.6%, were female. Compared with healthy controls, the odds of being an affected family member or having sporadic SCAD was significantly associated with the SCAD PRS, where the odds ratio or represents an increase in odds per 1 SD increase in PRS, affected family member or 2.14, 95% C, 1.78 to 2.50, adjusted P equals 1.96 times 10 minus 4, sporadic SCAD or 1.63, 95% C, 1.37 to 1.89, adjusted P equals 5.69 times 10 minus 4. This association was not seen for unaffected family members, or, 1.03, 95% C, 0.46 to 1.61, adjusted P equals 0.91, compared with controls. Further, those with familial SCAD were overrepresented in the top quintile of the control PRS distribution, or, 3.70, 95% C, 2.93 to 4.47, adjusted P equals 0.001, those with sporadic SCAD showed a similar pattern or 2.51, 95% C, 1.98 to 3.04, adjusted P equals 0.001. Affected individuals within a family did not share any rare deleterious variants in CTD-associated genes. Conclusions and relevance Extreme aggregation of common genetic risk appears to play a significant role in familial clustering of SCAD as well as in sporadic case predisposition, although further study is required. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.